Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. Well, if you look historically, I mean, people have been talking about treaties forever. You know, everyone wants to be the first one who said something. But at the end of the day, I think that if we look right through our history, uh, there was great leadership and people were talking about treaty. You know, in recent times, you know, the call for Makarata by by Atsik when Atsik was in power, and it's just continued on through the years. The path to treaty in Queensland and in conversation with Aaron Faso. And it was the first time I, was, I ever saw you know, uh, a group of black men being praised for their success, praised for their ability. They're, they're adorned by the Australian public and, you know, they were being celebrated. And so, you know, that, that had a huge impact on myself. I wanted to, you know, in some way, you know, replicate that, you know, when I had the opportunity in pole position, so to speak, to tell my own stories about my own people. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Some states are now moving towards treaties with First Nations people. In Queensland, legislation was passed in May to allow the government and Indigenous communities to progress further down the path towards a treaty. And both our guests on today's show are involved with that journey. Publisher, playwright, author, speaker, director, teacher, lecturer and traditional dancer. These are just a few of the roles Auntie Cheryl Buchanan has filled. Highly esteemed by the First Nations community for her lifetime of commitment to the advancement of First Nations people, she is now involved in leadership of the Queensland Treaty process. Arnie Cheryl Buchanan does not seem to be slowing down any time soon. Arnie Cheryl, welcome to Speaking Out. Now, before we dive in, um, I wanted to maybe set the scene a little bit and ask you if you could share with us where you grew up. And what shaped you particularly to have such a strong sense of social justice? Wow. So I grew up in Kunnamulla for um early part of my childhood. Always went back there, though, from a fairly dysfunctional um, family life. But uh, my grandmother was my stability, I think. And she herself uh, was was a domestic, so was a slave. My I come from, you know, a line of slaves, those who survived the massacres. And she started a laundry business in Kunnamulla and uh, very forthright, very um, great values, great principles about life and always taught me that education was very important and that there was a world waiting outside there for me outside of Kunnamulla. So it's funny how just a few things that are said to you in your childhood really can influence um, where you end up in your life. And I, I owe it to her, I think. And my mother and all of my aunts. I grew up in a household of seven deadly black women. Can you imagine that? I didn't have any other choice. And they all loved to talk, the whole lot of them. Amazing. And were they, uh, you know, were they very engaged with politics? Because you seem to get uh, very actively involved in community politics at a very young age. Yeah, I think from my family, I'm probably, I guess, a standout in that sense. But they all um, were engaged in community organisations but also involved in politics as well. So early Fikatsi, a couple of my aunts were involved in the Fikatsi movement, for example. You know, sometimes history just happens to fall on your lap and I think the time that I was born, the things that were going on and the kind of changes that were happening throughout the world heavily influenced where I ended up in uh, Brisbane and I always wanted to, you know, get out and get to the big smoke like every other young black fella. And so when I got there, I immediately got went to a Fakatsi conference with my two aunts. And I think from there, um, yeah, I just started getting involved with some of the people and really liked the idea that we could try and change, you know, the world and change our world. There's a lot of focus on Redfern and its politics and, and Victoria. I think sometimes it gets a bit lost at how many 
great political thinkers were based in Brisbane. And also the fact that you had the Bjorki-Peterson influence, which was very aggressive, violent towards blackfellas. It was a very different environment. What were some of your reflections of that time that you think it's really important that people don't forget about what was very particular about Brisbane and Queensland? Well, for a start, I think the, the sad thing about, you know, reflecting on things is that I find everything very Sydney-centric, New South Wales-centric in, t- in terms of how things were filmed and videoed and interviews and photos and everything, that not a lot seems to have been captured in what I would think would be probably one of the most exciting times in history in Brisbane, in that you had a clear breakaway from the kind of assimilationist viewpoint to a viewpoint of self-determination, black control of black affairs. And the only only things that really um, uh, talked about are some of the demonstrations that occurred, but they in themselves don't give you a breadth of understanding of the horrors that people were going through and all of us were going through during those times. There was a meeting, for example, in 84, Larissa, I don't know if you know about it, but it was held in Roma and it was with all of the cow cockies, you know, all the landholders. And Bjorki Peterson and Russ Hinds and them organised that. And they were just hyping up saying, you know, the blackfellas are coming to take your land. And after that period, what happened was that there was so much destruction of cultural sites, um, artefacts and so on. Um, you know, they dynamited uh, caves where they knew there, there may have been um, paintings they dynamited uh, rock wells and so on. These things, of course, you're not going to read about them in anywhere, really. But, you know, it was significant because it really fueled our passion and made us even more determined to continue on in what we were doing. Because when you go from a space of uh, we don't want to be the quiet little black fellas, you know, we speak your language and we dress in your clothes, to starting to question the authority, question what's going on with the corporates, question what's going on with mining um, in particular, then everything changes. Everything changes very dramatically. Our organisations that we set up, people think that they were set up because people actually cared about what was happening in the communities. Our Aboriginal medical service and legal service and that, they were set up because we cared because we saw the need for something to happen. And I was involved in that, you know, as one of the founders of some of those early organisations. And it wasn't for the unions and probably the Communist Party at that stage and some, you know, amazing Jewish friends that we had who used to donate to our uh, struggle and to donate to our cause that, you know, were able to at least provide some assistance Everything was voluntary then. Uh, We didn't have funds at all. I used to sell took raffles at the Adelaide Hotel and I wasn't allowed in the hotel because the aunties wouldn't let me go in the hotel. So I'd be passing passing a little raffle book, you know, through the through the uh, windows. <laughs> yeah, so oh, honestly, I'm I'm just so glad that I was I was part of it all, you know, really and truly. I'm really grateful we got a chance to hear a bit of that history. It's, as you say, it's, it's sort of something that gets brushed over, but it's a very big, important part of what people fought for. And, um, I do want to acknowledge that you did have that role in the establishment of those community controlled organizations. You mentioned that your, the women in your family had been involved in them too. I do want to get onto some of the work that you're doing now, but just on the community controlled organizations, you talked about their importance. They've you've really committed to building them up. From your perspective, why why would you? How do you explain why you feel they're so important and what their role is today when we're living in a very different time to what it was when you were first setting them up? Well, you only have to look at what's happening with closing the gap. End of story. You know that we still need to be doing these uh, things. We still need to be uh, taking control of our lives. Because if we don't do it, the government's not going to do it. No one's going to do it for us. When things become really effective in our community, you know this as well as I do, Larissa, 
They cut the funding. They cut the resourcing. You know, the, the legal aid, you know, the whole, oh, you can go to legal aid. Legal aid came because they were trying to undercut the existence and, well, the success of the Aboriginal Legal Services, for example, because we had some fantastic lawyers in there who later became, you know, ministers and all kinds of different things. You know, Matt Foley was one of them. So we had these great solicitors who really fought for uh, social justice. And in those early days, I often like to remind people that there was a thing called Her Majesty's Pleasure. So a lot of young people would come down from communities and end up in Brisbane, as a lot of us did, and for very minor charges when they were picked up, uh, it could be, you know, common assault or whatever it might have been. But at the time, a lot of them were getting Her Majesty's Pleasure, which means that only the Queen could let you out of jail. And so a lot of those deaths in custody that were reported in the Royal Commission report were a lot of those young people who came through the system in the in the late 60s, early 70s. Where we are now is we are struggling. People are struggling uh, for survival. Uh, it's not about, you know, struggling for relevance and, you know, here, look at us, here we are. But it's the fact that the statistics say it all. We've got the data to show that we have more children being taken from families. We have more people in custody, more juveniles in custody. I wouldn't have ever dreamed in the 70s to see the number of Aboriginal females that are now incarcerated, um, you know, and, and some for very, you know, serious charges as well. Who would have ever thought that? So there are these huge problems going on and people are just struggling to know how can we get through this maze when the resourcing is being taken over by non-Indigenous and this black cladding that's going on is, is so true here in Queensland. You've got all these organisations set up who are coming in and out of communities, you know, local towns, wherever it is, some of the discrete communities like Sherberg and so on, coming in and out every day of the week, five days a week, providing services and there's no outcomes. So what does that say to you? Uh, people care? Of course. No, they don't. So we have to keep maintaining as best we can all of those community-controlled organisations that we have. You know, they're our last stand, really, in some ways. Given the amount of uh, effort you've put into the protection of Indigenous rights and the building of community-controlled organisations, what led you to want to be involved in the treaty process that's currently occurring in Queensland? Well, if you look historically, I mean, people have been talking about treaties forever. You know, everyone wants to be the first one who said something. But at the end of the day, I think that if we look right through um, our history, uh, there was great leadership and people were talking about treaty. You know, in recent times, you know, the call for Makarata by, by Atsik when Atsik was in power, and it's just continued on through the years. I think, you know, with the Queen dying and you go, you know, the British colony, how long is this going to exist in the minds and our lives where we have to continue to be under the thumb of the British Empire for whatever that is? Because we don't get anything from it. What do we get for it? We have our people still living in fourth world conditions. Two hours, you know, from Brisbane um, in Sherberg. You know, there aren't a lot of mansions there happening. There's not a lot of, you know, a lot going on for the community there. The great change now is that they have a woman um, who was a mayor trying to, you know, do things. But all I'm saying to you is that we have to have something. We have to give our people something to look forward to into the future. And I think the treaty is it. I think that just the discussion, just the conversation about treaty... I won't be around probably, um, you know, if tre once treaty is even signed, I would say. But I think that it's an important conversation because we need to get people thinking that you don't have to just accept what's been our lot in life for the last 236 years, that things can be better. And as I say, when I've been doing consultations, you can wake up one day and say, I'm not just surviving anymore today. I'm living my best life. Now, 
On what day has that ever happened to any blackfella? None that I know of. Because it doesn't matter. Every day you still, even if you may be living a comfortable life, you might have a job, whatever it might be, that doesn't mean to say everyone in your family or your clan or your mob has got the same things. And we all go through sorry business. We are all there because when someone in our community bleeds, we all bleed. That's who we are as a people. That's what kept us here for 65,000 years. You know, that's within our DNA. When you've gone around and done those consultations, a big state, and you've done a lot of them, what are the sorts of aspirations or concerns that you're hearing back from the community about the potential for a treaty and the other aspects of the process that you're looking at, truth-telling and representation? You know, I think generally, Larissa, everyone wants treaty. I think there was always a huge concern that was raised at every meeting, even going back to the treaty working group that I was a part of in 2019, where people were saying, do we have to give, will will that mean that we'll lose our sovereignty? So the good thing about it is that we've gone kind of past that conversation now and people have a lot more understanding that we are a sovereign people and we can live as sovereign people on a daily basis if that's what we choose to do. And so when the uh, Pastor Treaty Bill was being co-designed and written, it was historic because you would have read the preamble and I think what we've tried to do in the preamble is to capture, I think, really all the hearts and minds of people, you know, in saying we have culture, we have law, we have all of those things which we consider are a society and not, you know, have to say we are civilised, you know, the old 70s cry. Um, We are a society and we have science. We have all of those things which make us a society. And to start seeing those things now being lived out on uh, documentaries, on some of the films, on some of the truth-telling that's happening Um, with some of the stories that you see on SBS and so on and ABC, it's a testament to the fact that people want to do things differently now. People want to tell the story. People want to have a better life in the future. And we just don't need to sit back and accept what has been dished out for us um, for all of this time. We need to think big, I think. That's the other thing. Well, I would say I encourage people, as we did the consultations, you know, for our mob, we're just saying, oh, you know, the service organisations, you know, they're not doing their jobs and we've got mental health issues and this issue. And and I said to them, you know, like, these are human rights things. To have a decent house, to have access to uh, proper medical treatment and so on, these are human rights issues. Within this discussion, we need to be thinking much more broadly than that and much deeper than that. And we need to be thinking about, okay, in that 65,000 years, if that is the figure, and it doesn't matter if it's correct or not, I mean, we've been here since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation, you know, this is a question that I'd say to people to, and, and people would respond and say, well, you know, what did you lose? What have we lost in all of that time? What, what was taken? So it's not just about having a 236-year conversation. It's about getting people to think beyond that, about where we've come from and where we want to be. And, you know, the land was taken forcefully. Our people were murdered, raped and so on. And do we have access to traditional country largely? In Queensland, no, that's not the case. It's very mishmash. You know, you still, through native title, as you know, you still have to get permission from the property owner if you can go onto the property to perform your cultural heritage business if that's what you want to do. But people are exhausted. How, how, how many people have got the time to forge those relationships which require them to get on these vast tracts of land which they haven't had access to because they're all removed from their traditional country or only lived on a very small portion of their traditional country 
And so I think people reached a, maybe a place of exhaustion. We've kind of now on the road to on the road to hope. That's what I talk about. I think that we're on the road to hope that we are vesting a lot in this treaty discussion on hope. Hope that there will be people who are out there who are going to be listening. People who will want to participate. You know, we had over what two hundred thousand people who walked the bridge for reconciliation. So there are a lot of good people out there who've become silent, who, who've just become defeated in in where they're at. But I think what we have to do is, yeah, you know, inspire them again, reignite those passions in people. And I'm starting to see it. And I know that people think that it's got a bit murky because of the voice discussions and so on. But I still have... You know, I still have a lot of faith in people at the end of the day that I think there are enough people out there who can make a difference in getting treaties. Uh, It could be one treaty, it could be several treaties. I don't know how many treaties we'll end up with, but I I think it's going to be done. It strikes me reflecting on the enormous contribution you've made and how long you've been on the front line. I'd love to hear that you still have hope. Can you share with us where you get your strength from? What keeps the fire in the belly after all of these years, especially when, as you have pointed out, the increasing rates of child removal, continual deaths in custody, overrepresentation of women in the criminal justice system, a lot hasn't changed. But for you, as somebody who continues to be a warrior, where do you get that strength from? You know, it's really funny. I had um, not long ago, they uh, had seven stages of living. They did a living tribute for me at uh, Queensland Performing Arts Centre. And it's kind of a question that I had to answer myself, really, because I had to, you know, get up and do a thing at the end of it. For me, I believe that from a very early stage, I believed that I was, and I still believe, that I'm revolutionary. And as a revolutionary, what you do is you use every tool that you can. You never just stay with one thing. Whatever comes along, you give it a go. If it doesn't work, you try something else. I'm so proud of our people that we um, decided to survive, that our ancestors who, who survived the massacres decided we are going to survive. And I think They've imprinted that into our brains. And to continue our cultural values and continue our law within our thinking, in the way that we live, in the way that we present ourselves and the way that we do. And like I said, it's in our DNA anyway. The other thing that I always remind people is that, you know, there's only one race. There's only one race. That's a human race, right? (laughs) We we have a lot of different, you know, cultures and, and amazing things, but we're all on this one planet and people forget that as well. People exist and live their lives as if there are all these other planets out there. No, we're all in this one planet. And guess what? If it goes, we all go. I don't even know if that makes sense, Larissa, but it's a driving force for me because I, I think that there is some amazing... Uh, geographically, culturally, whichever way you look at it, we are so blessed. I mean, what what kind of world were we born into? You know, I think that if you're going to live, uh, you have to decide that you're going to live. And if you're going to live, then you have to contribute. And if you're going to contribute, what are you going to do to make changes each day? You know, and the other mantra of my mum was, you know, Respect, caring and sharing. Oh, my God, we heard that every day of the week practically. And then as I had children, she'd be passing it on to them and now I find myself passing it on to my grandchildren. And just, you know, just little things like that uh, are reminders that if we are humble, if we continue, you know, to, to treat each other with respect, if we do share what we are doing and we do care about our people, then you can make huge changes. And at the end of the day, 
what makes changes, Larissa? It's people. It is only that's the only way that things can change in this world, and for our people is ourselves. We're the masters of our own destiny. You know, self-determination means we take control of our lives, we take control of the conversations, and we take control of the place that we want to be. And it's more important now because within the next 10 years, we're going to have this huge population of young people, 25 years and under. We have a duty right now to try and tell the story correctly, educate our young people in particular, and educate our mob so that they have the tools, have the tools to keep the fight going. No one's going to give us anything. Whatever we're going to get in our lives, we're going to have to fight for. And that includes treaty. That includes treaty and getting the best of what people expect that we are owed for the things that have happened to us, things that happened to our ancestors. Honey, Cheryl Buchanan, what a privilege to have you on the show. I want to thank you for your lifelong commitment to our issues, your wisdom and your ability to always make sure that we dream big and have hope. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Well, thank you and thank you to all the listeners. I, I know I'm a bit of a rambler sometimes, but... Yeah, you know, maybe another time, another time I can come back you and come talk. You come back any time. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It was a privilege. Thank Thanks, you so Teresa. much. Thanks, Bye-bye. That was Arnie Cheryl Buchanan. She writes, directs, teaches, advocates, lectures and dances. But her main role at the moment is helping lead the Queensland treaty process. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Next, Aaron Faso was a health worker and bouncer before he became a rugby league player. Then the Torres Strait Islander switched to acting and film production. Aaron's now also helping guide Queensland communities on the path to a treaty. But first, let's hear some music from hip-hop artist Dobby. Why would I be dealing with a label when the video suck? While the budget in the States is a million bucks. Don't want to do it, Sony, I can pull in a year duck. Government don't want to fund it, they ain't giving a f- But I gotta stay, people only listen to pop. Got the responsibility to pump the industry up. Rap is affiliated with a drink in the club. As an image that is pissing me off. Honestly, I don't think everyone should post an opinion as such. But the political spirit isn't as given as much. Not to mention this aborigine is sick of injustice. I'm spitting for a cousin who is sitting in cuffs. I admit that I'm living with a different buzz. I commit that I never rap for the money. I'd rather be hungry than have a passion in indigenous stuff than go platinum with a single of drugs. Serious, I'd rather get a minimum cut than have a dividend fund. If a method I could regenerate love in a generation of haters that you think we are from. Oh, man, you see, we ain't a stick in the mud. Same reason we eliminate guns. Same reason that love will be made legal in a figure of months. I don't say this to be bigger or nothing. I'm trying to see what is wrong in order to be your people equalized. One, 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 one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I feel like I'm in every element For a beat, leave me waiting in line When I'm all about the drums and I'm able to grind Not to mention money-wise, I've been paid on my fines And I love the collaboration, but I'm wasting my time So many men and women with the fame in their eyes You wanna keep it on the prize, gotta pay them no mind I do it for the love, it's the way of my life And what I speak in the streets, what I say on the mic The vision I've been having is allegory The passion is amatory, I love it like Frank and a can of ravioli I've been up in the laboratory And raptured, I wanna get it like Mac I'm Rick, I'm Manic and Matt and Morty Rap is amazing, it should be mandatory Nowadays my niece and nephew been dabbing on me What a time to be alive, right? The more minds with the rise, the bigger the storyline Go! I learned these things I know now There's so much more, there's no doubt I'm up, I'm about to go down I need to just go roll out I learned these things I know now There's so much more, there's no doubt I'm up, I'm about to go down I need to just go roll out I learned these things I know now I know what I 
This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Aaron Faso was a community health worker and King's Cross bouncer before he stepped into the limelight as a professional rugby league player. Then the Torres Strait Islander switched to acting. Aaron's featured in a number of TV shows such as East West 101, Black Comedy, RAN and The Straits, which he also wrote and produced. His professional life has had an upward trajectory, but his personal life has had some significant losses. Aaron's now using his position to help guide communities on the path to a treaty with the Queensland government. Aaron Faso, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you, Larissa, and uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to diving in. <laughs> well, I wanted to start with a little bit about your background and I wondered if you could share with us where you grew up and what kind of shaped the person you became. Yeah, look, I, I grew up in Cairns and in between Cairns in a, in a community back up in uh, the tip of Cape York uh, known as Bamiga in Saysia. And um, look, I grew up around a really strong family and at the age of six, my father and my grandfather both passed away um, two weeks apart uh, from each other. So it had a massive impact upon me and, and my uh, two younger siblings. And uh, basically, you know, we were raised, you know, by mum and, and nan. Uh, we were also raised by, you know, just the strong knit um, of family that moved essentially down from Bamiga back in the 60s. We were raised, you know, pretty much immersed in, in uh, the Torres Strait culture. Mum and Nan were, they raised us around, you know, song, dance, um, language, but also losing um, a father at such a such a young age, just, uh, you know, being raised by fiercely strong women, you know, I think uh, gave me a strong sense of, you know, that independence, uh, watching my my uh, grandmother and mother uh, raising us three kids, but also that profound uh, sense of strength that um, you know I, I came to respect in regards to women and uh, the important role that they play. That um, you know, regardless of you know being raised uh, without men in the home, that we we're all able to you know kick on uh, not without it not without its challenges but you know we'll definitely be we were able to kick on and become uh, successful in our own right as men um you know as as we grew i want to get into your huge interest in storytelling of course um but just before we do of course another big part of your life has been your ability to excel at sport so you've sort of had this sort of dual love i guess of creativity and sport have they sat side by side or do they compete for you no i think they've um uh, sat side by side i think i think um i think my due, due to my failures i think um in my pursuit to as an aspiring um you know professional um football player i think it, it was through those failures that informed me you know, of the things that I needed to kind of work on, um, you know, and to become successful as a as a storyteller. And I think um, they sat side by side together because I think, uh, again, you know, being raised um, in, in such a strong uh, family with, you know, strong values around culture, uh, around song, around dance, performance and, and kind of... Uh, you know the, the performance, and later on now, you know that which you know came into acting, but storytelling essentially was at the heart of um, you know the way that I was raised. Uh, when I look back, and performance, song, dance were always there from my you know formative age, um, you know through through to adulthood. So I think the switch over to you know, eventually into into acting and, and on a, you know, professional level, I think it was just a transition uh, that came, well, not, not, not so much seamlessly, but I think uh, certainly through those, you know, those failures as, you know, in the pursuit of act, uh, in, in my, my failures in the pursuit of professional football playing, I think uh, informed me in terms of uh, certainly what I needed to work on in around 
consistency, discipline, and also the the ability to you know continue to forge through challenges of you know being set, you know being told no, and being able to um, you know push through those you know challenges even if people. Do say that uh, you know you're, you're not particularly right for the for the part because I think uh, film and television it's 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 almost like I'm in the business of rejections, uh, <laughs> you know because you're not making she, it sound very tempting. <laughs> no, 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 but 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 really, I mean, you, you, you're going to get more no's, um, you know, than than you are yeses. But you know, it's about you know self belief. Also, like looking at other avenues in terms of. Um, because I didn't come from a professional acting background. I didn't go to uh, any NIDA or any WAPA. So I think when I landed in, eventually in Sydney uh, and not knowing not anything about the game, but, you know, being fortunate to, to, to jag a few roles, I think the the pursuit to actually, you know, um, hone my skills, I went and, you know, sought acting schools, acting classes, and eventually, you know, producing, writing and directing kind of ran simultaneously because I I realised really quickly that there were really no roles for uh, real people of colour or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders. Um, And so I started developing, you know, know, writing projects and concepts uh, pretty early, uh, but also knowing that I needed to hone my skills in that area as well, I, I sourced um, writing classes, uh, directing classes, as well as you know fine tuning myself um, around producing as well. And being fortunate enough to have mentors who are extremely you know fine uh, producers as well. So I think it was just once landing in, in, in the industry that I knew really quickly, and these are from the failures of, of, of you know, aspiring football player that, um, that I needed to hone my skills and I needed to push myself further in regards to uh, really kind of um, learning the concepts uh, and the landscapes around, you know, acting, um, producing, writing and directing. It's certainly clear that you've taken the craft very seriously and you talk about the performances and then your development as a a, a writer and a producer as well. I think one of the real achievements you've had is to put uh, particularly the Torres Strait perspective on the screen. I mean, you've been at the forefront of that. What has it meant for you to see stories from your own community, your own family finally on the screen and to have been a part of that? Yeah, look, Larissa. I think it's like um, I think it's like anything, isn't it? When 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 we see a, the reflection of our own images, um, and we see our own stories being replicated on on the screen, and you know you're aware that that's going through to pretty much you know a fair few lounge rooms as well. Um, I think it's a, it's a real sense of um, I guess there's the, the part of it is there's a sense of pride, but also a great gratification um, for me because I think um, you know there's not 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 a lot known uh, throughout the country around you know the the other First Nations uh, group of people, the Torres Strait Islanders, which I essentially am, uh, I am of. Throughout my time, you know, you know, being raised here in Cairns, um, you know, travelling. You know the length and breadth of this country, and and, and even the world. Uh, I found really quickly that you know there wasn't not much known about you know Torres Strait Islanders, um, and about you know a lot of the the accomplishments that that we have made, and also the contribution that we have um, you know given to this to this great country of ours. Uh, when you think about you know everything from the pearling industry, the you know the multi-billion-dollar pearling industry that you know essentially you know gave way to you know infrastructure and development not only in the state but also the the country as a whole. Um, you know, I think about the World War Two. You know, eight hundred and eighty or so men volunteered to fight for the country. This is pre sixty-seven, and uh, you know the largest. Largest ever um, group of volunteers, you know, ever to um, volunteer per capita. You know the compliment, the accomplishments that they made during that time, and 
So there's there's been these great milestones and there's, there's been great great accomplishments, um, you know, that, you know, Torres Strait Island, the men and women have contributed to, you know, um, the community, to society um, in, in, in various ways. So I think for me, it was important for me to, you know, once in, in a position to to be able to tell these stories was to be able to, you know, showcase these stories. And, and it's about positive imagery as well too because historically Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have had a negative, I guess, negative relationship with media. We've always been depicted as, you know, fringe dwellers. It was always been depicted from a position of deficit. So I think for me it was, you know, having that ability to have the control to showcase our people in a, in, in, in a position of empowerment. And, and you know, it's, it's about truth-telling. It's about telling the truth of how we've really contributed to this, this country, but also about the challenges and the atrocities that we've also uh, faced as well. And in despite of that, we've continued to prevail. Now, in the 1980s, you know, I was a massive, you know, cricket fan. Um, the West Indies cricket team were... Um, such a, a great sporting team and you know this is a group of black men that you know I gravitated to and that you know, I was a massive fan of the fan of um, you know that that particular team and it was the first time I was I ever saw you know uh, a group of black men being praised for their success uh, praised for their ability they're they're adorned by the Australian public and you know they were being celebrated and so you know that that had a huge impact on myself. I wanted to, you know, in some way, you know, replicate that. You know, when I had the opportunity in pole position, so to speak, to tell my own stories about my own people, but also, you know, informing, you know, the truth about how my people have contributed to society, to the community, but also give that opportunity for our children and our children's children because. As you know, Larissa, you know, film and television, it, 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 it'll, it'll live between, beyond us, you know, certainly around the, the material that I've, um, I've made around, you know, when, when I think about Blue Water Empire, a hi- history snapshot of, of, the, of the Torres Straits, and in some way I will always have or, or be telling uh, stories of my people um, from, from that particular region. You've also taken on a very different role now, which I'd like to chat with you about, which, of course, is your leadership role within the treaty process that Queensland's undertaking. What was it about this process that made you want to kind of put your hand up and get involved with it? You know, I come from a strong line of, you know, men and women of advocacy. You know, when I put my... Because I asked myself that question too. Why the hell did you put your hand up, Aaron? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you've got a good answer to that question. (laughs) But no, look, I think, you know, when I think about the lineage, uh, my own genealogy in regards to people of advocacy, people who have pioneered certain um, milestones, or political milestones um, in the Torres Strait, it kind of made sense to me that you know that this was a step that I was that I was taking um I've always been a you know through through my own work uh, an advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, voices but also from a, jo- a social justice perspective you know I've always been a, a, around that growing up in Cairns of you know whether it was you know, my my mother and grandmother being part of the the, the housing movement here in here in Cairns, or any other social justice movement that was occurring at the time. So, when this opportunity came along, it was just a natural natural path forward to engage in in the treaty space. The work I was not aware of, <laughs> so so that was the uh, i guess the, the uh, a fast learning learning curve in regards to uh, engaging in the space but not really actually uh, realizing in terms of the you know once appointed the task that we we were given to i guess um further lay the tracks because i think you know we've been talking about you know treaty for more than 100 years in this country certainly from a Torres Strait perspective, you know, we do have a treaty in, in, in place uh, with Papua New Guinea, which is a, the international treaty that, that exists. From this perspective, I think this is a, a, certainly a, a new way forward 
you know, for, for the Queensland government um, and even for us as First Nations people when when I think about the, the co-design of the, of the legislation and, and I think about the work that we we were appointed uh, and tapped on the shoulder to basically embark upon um, over a short course of time as well. There was, no, there was no real time to actually, you know, have any kind of uh, like a honeymoon kind of period. We were actually straight straight into work and I was appointed as part of the, the legal com- subcommittee, which was a, a massive eye-opener for myself as well because I, we were kind of entrenched in the actual work of, of creating and authoring that the legislation along with the, um, you know, state experts as well, the legal experts as well, which is uh, an eye-opening experience, fascinating, but also one that was, you know, you, gave you a real insight in regards to the importance of words and how you know words are actually loaded and that each sentence within the legislation they have weight and it was important that even in in, in that short amount of time that we really had to um, think about the implications of you know what was going to go into this this treaty because you know this was part of lawmaking so and this was something that you know I thought I'd never ever be a part of you have done extensive consultations out on the road going around the state, not, not a very small state, a very big state. What were some of, just finally, what were some of the highlights in going out and talking to mob on the ground about the possibility of a treaty? You know, Larissa, due, due to the, I guess, the um, diabolical experience of native title, um, that's, you know, that's impacted our communities. I mean, there's a lot of fracture within our communities. But, you know, once we were able to massage those conversations, you know, in terms of what, what treaty would mean. Treaty would actually give voice to our communities um, that, you know, from a, well, currently from a, from a Queensland government uh, perspective that, you know, there is nothing off the table. So when, when we talk about treaties, there's a, there's a whole lot of things that, you know, that, that, that are currently on the table from reparations to, um, you know, service delivery, to also uh, communities having, you know, treaties amongst themselves as well because when, when I think about, you know, there will need to be treaties in place for those who, um, you know, traditional owners versus uh, historical owners. So the conversations that we, we, we had throughout, you know, the community and, you know, we basically went about spreading ourselves, you know, throughout the throughout the state in, in that consultation, I mean... The feedback has been extremely positive. Um, there is a want um, throughout the, the communities in regards to engaging in in treaty and wanting, you know, basically more information in terms of once we once we go to set up once we're in the once we set up the the institute in regards to you know the truth telling process, but also uh, the truth telling inquiry uh, and that pathway movement towards treaty. But I'm really excited about, you know, the what treaty will potentially offer to, you know, my own region um, in the region of the Torres Strait. You know, there's a lot of talk uh, that's been garnered now for well over 40 years around autonomy, self-determination uh, and also self-governance. You know, there are some communities I feel that we've visited that have... Uh, looked like that, you know, that, that they could, you know, start engaging in that initial treaty conversation and what that treaty looks like. You know, when I think about the Yurimay people around, you know, the Cardwell area, you know, certainly, you know, there's there's nine tribes and clans that have that have come together. You know, uh, are really keen to talk about, you know, what what that treaty process looks like, what that actually means for them, and you know, in regards to. Service delivery, so regards regards to reparations and so forth. So you know they're in a really kind of you know uh, strong position um, in the Torres Straits. Uh, there, there's been long discussions around you know self governance, and, and there, there's a real real want from the people you know on the ground, grassroots people, to really kind of look at dismantling the current structures that exist. Because you know in the Torres Straits, it's such a small region, but you know there's there's so many tiers of of governance that exist. In the uh, in the region, I think there's a real want from the people to really kind of streamline that. 
um, but also to be able to have the opportunity to have self-governance. Aaron, it sounds like this is going to be very exciting work and I hope you can keep in contact with us as the process continues. Thank you so much for all of the work you're doing on the ground, your contribution to national storytelling and for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. No worries, Larissa. That was actor and producer Aaron Faso, who's co-chair of the Interim Truth and Treaty Body. We'll leave you with some music from our sound engineer here at Speaking Out, Craig Tillmouth. Here he is with One of These Days. One of these days gonna jump the hurdle. One of these days I'm gonna work it out. Just when I thought that it might be futile, I'm gonna surpass all my doubts. One of these days gonna live forever. One of these days I will never die. I'm not crazy, I'm not a legend. One of these days, baby, please don't cry. I know I've been living like a maniac for so long that I couldn't be wrong. I know you've been putting up with me for so long, but I'm never wrong. One of these days, maybe I'll be smarter. One of these days, maybe I'll be strong. Life just know that when I do, you'll acknowledge me, cause I was never wrong. Yeah, you'll acknowledge me, cause I was never wrong. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for more inspiring stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.